The following program is brought to you in living color on WTDR. And I the flame into which it is offered. I am the sire of the world, and this world's mother and grandsire. I am he who awards to each the fruit of his action. I make all things clean. I am home. Oh, I'm Tony Lepstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. is Michael Grosso. He earned his doctorate in philosophy from Columbia University. He's taught at the City University of New York, Kennedy University in California, and City University of New Jersey. He's the author of several books, including Smile of the Universe 
and his new book that we'll be talking about is The Yoga of Sound, The Life and Teachings of the Celestial Songman, Swami Nada Brahmananda. So, Michael Grosso, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our chat. Yes, me too. I really, really enjoyed this book. It's been many years since I have read this type of a book. I used to thrive on reading these kind of stories of people, you know, encountering their spiritual teachers for the first time and the kind of wonderful clash between young or sort of ignorant student with enlightened or liberated and wondrous being and the kind of magical relationship that emerges out of that when there seems to be a sort of fateful connection between the two. Yes, well, that sort of felt like that with me. I, I had these dreams, as I mentioned in the book, that anticipated the meeting with the Swami. I had this dream that at first I couldn't make any sense out of because I dreamt of a smallish, roundish man who wanted to be my music teacher. And, of course, it was puzzling because I already had one of my students teaching me how to play the flute, the great flute player, and happened to be my philosophy student. So I was surprised to have this dream. And within a week or so, I was introduced through a colleague of mine, a psychotherapist, to the name of Swami Nada Brahmananda, and she said she thought uh, I'd be interested in meeting with him, which I did. And it turns out, and of course I didn't realize this immediately, but as time went on, that he fit the dream. He was small, he was funny, but the thing that really did it was that in the dream he said, there are no instruments. And of course there were instruments that I used, but the point that the Swami made to me continuously was that you don't need instruments. I, one day I told him, I said, I can't afford to buy a pair of drums, a tabla. I couldn't afford the, the two drums. And he looked at me and he smiled and he started hitting on my leg and then my head, rhythmically, gently, of course. <laughs> and, and he said, it doesn't matter. You can use anything to practice with. And uh, he always liked to say the best place to practice is in the latrine. <laughs> Nobody's going to bother you. And it doesn't matter how you're practicing, as long as you're doing the mental discipline part. And you can tap on anything anywhere to get the audible effect of what you're doing. So that fit perfectly my dream. And then the other connection was that a few years prior to this meeting with Swami Nada Brahmananda, I had an amazing experience uh, just a few days before I got my Ph.D. in Columbia University. My girlfriend and I, we were living together, it was her birthday, and on this beautiful spring evening, and we were listening to an extraordinary piece of music by John Coltrane called The Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, okay? A wild and very intense piece of music, and we're listening to it. It was Jane's birthday, and we were just relaxing together in our apartment on the top floor in uh, Greenwich Village. And then suddenly, as we're listening to this music, I got up from where we were lying down together and went to the window just to gaze out. It was 11.30 at night, a perfect spring evening. It was April 23rd, and Shakespeare's birthday, too, by the way. 
And I looked up into the sky, and I'm sort of, you know, with my foot going with the music, and suddenly these lights appear out of nowhere and start dancing around in the sky. It seemed in unison with my beat. And then I called Jane to the window, and I said, check this out. And she saw the same thing I saw. And then the entity, what I call it a light entity, that's all I saw, started to descend down toward us and made a sharp turn and shot down a block south. And where I could see that the entity had perched on top of a church, a Catholic church called Our Lady of Pompeii, and beamed at us. And then it shot back to where it first appeared, did a little number more, dancing around with the music, and then in a nanosecond, it went north, which we were able to follow it and see it, well, it didn't take long. In a half a second, it just streaked across Manhattan and disappeared over the Empire State Building. But coming back, you see, and then repeating what appeared to us at first was a clear indication it knew what it, it was doing. Somehow I knew we were listening to John Coltrane. And I should add in this story very quickly that we went up the roof. We were, I lived on the top floor. We just impulsively wanted to go up the roof. And there was a third person, a guy named Louie, who might had just introduced John Coltrane to. He was a young drummer. And before I opened my mouth, he looked at me and said, did you see that? And in short, third person saw the same thing that we saw. And, you know, now, since 2017, the New York Times has fessed up to the lives that the government has been imposing on us about you folks. Now know, through the government, that these phenomena are real, and they're taking place constantly, and they make, you know, advanced multi-million dollar jet fighters look like babies the way they play with us. So anyway, that's the story of how I began and how I got involved with Donato Promenade. It was interesting how those lights were following with your own direct experience of the rhythm and patterns of, of the music, which was what you were working with with Swami Brahmananda as well. He, he would talk about rhythm. Right. It's basic. I mean, the first thing that, that Nadabrahmanana said to me when I met him in his little office there on 24th Street, the first thing he said, I mean, after, you know, introducing himself and saying, hello, Michael, he said, mind control is life. Rhythm is music. And that theme, you know, about mind control and, and of course, rhythm, uh, what I discovered was not just musical rhythm, but all the rhythms of life itself. I mean, by the time I got finished with my lessons from Brahmananda, I uh, had a totally different concept of music, or, or let's say not a totally different, but an evolved, richer concept of music as, in a sense, you know, there's the music of life as well as the music of musical instruments, the music of art, the painting, of movement, the way we love, and even perhaps the way we hate, but to tune into this sort of cosmic rhythm manifest in a thousand different ways was the big message, not just playing on an instrument, which is also essential for Nada Brahmananda, 
but his concept of music was much bigger, more creative than just ordinary everyday music, which is enough for most of us. But uh, so that was the beginning of my experience with Swami Nada. Yeah, that's fascinating. How the rhythms of music and sound are are vibrations, which are these oscillations, and and in life there's this continual oscillation between the myriad range of, of different polarities that we experience in this world and mm-hmm. how sound and all kinds of things emerge out of all of those oscillations. So um, it's, it's a fascinating kind of wellspring from which all things arise out of. Like in the old scriptures, they talk about everything being light, but also saying that, that in the beginning was the word, which is really a sound or vibration. And Mm -hmm. Swami Brahmananda also talked about the unstruck sound. Yes. I think what he means there is that the the spiritual ground of the universe assumes various sensory forms and shapes. So at the deepest level, the inaudible sound is the deepest level of music. And certainly as a metaphor that works, and literally I construe that to mean the unstruck sound is the mental, underlying mental and spiritual reality that we all, in different ways, draw upon in the course of our lives. Some of us more deeply and thoughtfully and consciously, others is just part of the background, the unrealized background. What I got out of my meetings in my at least one or two years that I was hanging out with the Swami was one of the big ideas that I derived from my experience with Nanda Brahmananda is the importance of what in Indian philosophy is called sadhana, or spiritual practice. And if there's one thing I try to convey in my book, it's the importance and the value that we all find some way of learning how to tune ourselves into the deep mind, the deep subconscious, the spiritual ground of our being. A practice that it doesn't have to be professional, and it can be anything. It could be stamp collecting, anything that you have a passion for that you can use to explore your own mental skills and evolve and get more deeply into yourself. It could serve. Now, the arts are my preference, But I would argue that no matter who you are and what you do, you can find something, or one might choose to find something if one wanted to explore the depths of one's latent inner realities to deploy in the art of living. And the biggest art of music, as Narabramananda said many times, is the art of living. Of course, the underlying notion, beside rhythm, which is somewhat mysterious, there is this other sense of harmony. We all know that part of the appeal of music is the fact that there can be many sounds that coincide in a rhythmic and vivid way. And then, of course, at the end of the book, I have a chapter, a long chapter, on the concept of divine music throughout history. And it turns out that, you know, it's, it's a motif that you can find in the history of science. The Pythagoras, for example, the guy who discovered 
through mathematics the patterns of music, the, the scales of music. And so anyway, that was the gist of that point. So it's interesting that you bring up Pythagoras, because I, I was interested in bringing that up as well as the physicist Wolfgang Pauli's view of science, you know, in contrast to our, our current materialistic, capitalistic, exploitative approach to science. And right. Right. That, that's a big, big theme that I discuss in the latter part of the book. But yes, Pauli was one of the, perhaps the only major physicist that refused to participate in the building of the atomic bomb. Einstein and Oppenheimer did, but after they did, and they realized what they did, they recanted, they apologized for unleashing such a diabolical piece of technology. So that raises the whole question of what kind of science do we want? Do we want a science that is life-supporting, planet-revering, sentient-friendly, <laughs> or do we want to allow science, as in fact historically it has been allied, to capitalism and militarism. The 2023 military bill that America is shelling out in terms of its taxes is, what was it now, $820 billion, something like that. These huge monster numbers. All of that money is going into creating, upgrading, our already world-destroying arsenals of weapons, to upgrading them. Of course, a lot of people are making lots of money, but I would rather see billions of dollars used to help human beings live more satisfying and less, you know, deprived lives. I just think that that is a profound issue that we need to think about, all of us, ways of revising how we understand the role of science, I mean, which is undoubtedly fantastic, scientific evolution. We now have machines that can answer all our questions, as you know. And just the other day, I read something that just completely blew my mind, Tonio. The story of a man who was using a device to talk to, and the entity talked him into committing suicide to save the world, to be a token suicide against the use of technology that's creating all of the gases that are heating up the planet, and that science tells us We've got about 10 years left before the disasters we're already witnessing become infinitely more widespread. So that's pretty far-out stuff. And I think that the likelihood of the scientific world and the intelligentsia of the planet in general, they're not going to change. I don't see any hope or reason to suspect that such a grandiose transformation of the role of science is likely to happen now. Personally, I think we're going to have to sort of live through the catastrophic consequences of what we've done as a species. And when it's totally disastrous and the ruin is sort of obvious to everybody on the planet, a little bit like a near-death experience, when on the last breath, as it were, there may be signs of massive changes and transformation. In the meantime, there'll be, you know, ongoing struggles between those conservative individuals who want to keep the world operating in the profitable fashion that they find it and have made it, 
versus those who, uh, the, the victims, largely the, you know, the indigenous people, poor people, but all of us. I mean, I had the experience last summer. Uh, I live in Charlottesville, and I don't think about tornadoes or being, you know, it's very hilly in my region. And one day I was sitting at my computer working, and I heard a crashing sound, and my house shook a little bit. So I got up, and I went out, and I noticed that a tree whose trunk must have been about two feet thick, okay, a huge tree, came down two houses next to me and by inches, just inches, missed my house, particularly my studio, with all my artwork and books. If it had just gone a slightly different direction, it would have smashed my house to smithereens, killed me, and also killed my neighbor, because he was home, too. He works at home. Unbelievable. But in the end, all I had to do was pay $500 to clear the mess that was made. But the fallen tree was literally leaves just touching my house. And that's how lucky it was. So I realized, hey, <laughs> I thought I was safe here in Charlottesville. Forget it. I'm not. We're all going to be exposed to what's coming. And I think that is a signal of profound need to change, as uh, Antonio Guterres said, the head guy over at the UN. What we have to do is change the way we live. It's a sort of a philosophical revolution that we're all going to have to undergo to cope with this problem that we have created in the course of our advanced technological consumerist civilization. So that's a challenge. And I try to make that point clear in my book. Well, considering how Nada Brahmananda talked about Kali Yuga and that we were living at the tail end of that age and the characteristics of that age. On one hand, it seems like there's no escape from that since that's a natural cycle, a galactic cycle that we go through, whether we like it or not. And at the same time, he also talks about what you mentioned, you know, mind control is life mm -hmm. and that we have to make choices that are either life-affirming or disconnected from life. And from what you had said earlier, you do not sound optimistic about humanity's prospects for its ability to, to make sensible choices in the near term. So how do these dynamics play in your thinking between our being in this stage of Kali Yuga and at the same time being exhorted to understand the nature of life you know, mind control as life, and also mm -hmm. this this other line that he used with his limited English of coming correct, which he used mm -hmm. with you personally, but it's related to this. Yeah, well, you know, the Kali is interesting. The, the age of Kali is the age of conflict, and it's only in a secondary, this, the Kali is a goddess of time and death. That's one use of the term, but the other term, which I didn't know until I met the Swami and then read up on this, that we're in an age of conflict. And if that's certainly accurate, just look around America today, the most powerful nation on earth. We have profound division in attitudes and philosophy and all of that. So, and of course, not a Brahmananda, and it seems to be a traditional idea that in the age of conflict, that music 
which is about harmony and mind control and feeling, is the one thing and the easiest thing to change us. You know, in the course of my research, I looked up, you know, got into the history of the philosophy of music, and the Renaissance had similar ideas to Nada's in many ways. And Marsilio Ficino, one of the great Renaissance writers, his idea was for himself, his own, he was a kind of therapist before the time of therapy. He played musical instruments to calm himself and to try to unite the different psychic forces. But what he said was interesting. He says music is a form of activity that can move us emotionally in ways that concepts, ideas cannot. That we feel things more intensely and more vividly through music because the music, in a sense, comes out of the atmosphere around us. And it's physical, because without physical air, there would be no music. So the mind and the body are united in music, and music can touch us and transform us. And I think there's truth to that, but of course, most of the music that people listen to nowadays, and I'm not criticizing anybody, because all the music is fine as far as I'm concerned, but most of it is largely for entertainment and not as a means to integrate the broken psyches, as it were. So many people will, as we get more deeply into this global climate crisis, are going to wake up and realize we've got to do something about this, the young people particularly. And the younger you are, the more you're going to have to deal with this uh, as it gets worse. So my own feeling is that from what I can observe right now, we are not going to make the changes necessary in the next 10 years or 8 years, whatever it is. And my rather grim, realistic, I'm afraid, perspective is that it won't be until the disaster works itself out to such a degree that a new mode of life will be absolutely necessary. I don't see any grounds for believing that despite the parts of the world and many countless individuals deeply engrossed in the reality of this massive, unprecedented, man-made crisis, but not enough. I just don't see enough. But my view is that if someone... I remember my father. He used to smoke the pipe, and he had precancerous cells on his lips. And the doctor told him, you better just drop that smoking because it's going to kill you if you don't. So he came home and he told me he just tossed his pipe in the garbage and never picked it up again. And the cancer never developed and he lived to be 90 years old. But how many people would respond? The message now is to the whole planet, we have to change our lives in certain ways. Most people are not getting it. I mean, many just don't get it and don't believe it and don't want to change, especially those in the more advanced capitalistic societies where they have a lot to lose if they give up some of their practices which are so profit-oriented. So that's my view, that it gradually, as the world situation decays increasingly more in the direction of the whole of civilization coming down, the more that process happens, the more individuals will wake up to the radical necessity of changing how we live, how we think, how we relate to each other, how we relate to the natural world. The natural world is not just there to provide 
material benefits to the human race, especially when those benefits are superfluous. So that's my take on that. Yeah, but getting back to music and sound and mm-hmm. and creating harmony, using music intentionally in ways to create harmony, at least within ourselves in relation to this world of conflict that we're living in, and how that can help create harmony in the world around us, even if it isn't enough to stave off the inevitability of the crisis that we're facing. Oh, yeah. I mean, as I said, we should all have some kind of practice to tune us in to this level of spirituality that we need to tune into to save ourselves and the world around us. But again, my problem is with the mainstream power structure. You know, it's interesting that the Nazis loved the great German music, and many of them spent a lot of time uh, listening to Wagner and other German masters of music. That didn't prevent them from being, uh, you know, the lowest form of murderous humanity, perhaps, in the history of the world. So, again, I can only hope that more people, as they find their lives being interrupted, menaced, changed, if not outright destroyed, that they will wake up to the need to change their whole lifestyle. But, you know, if you've been raised and taught things from the beginning, I'll give an example. This is maybe a minor little truck. When I go shopping, let's say, I usually have cereal for breakfast and maybe an egg. So I'm looking for cereal. And the supermarket that I visit, nice people, by the way, that run it, there's a whole row that's about 100 feet long and about 7 feet tall, all of different kinds of cereal, all the different conceivable variations to try to get more and more people to change. It's just simply not necessary. All of the energy that is consumed, I'm not talking about human energy, I'm talking about the energy that creates these gases that heat up the atmosphere. It's just unnecessary. All the trucks that have to move around to move all these different kinds of cereals, and they're constantly doing this. The consumer culture, the consumer technologies are designed to get us to buy as many different kinds of things, whether we need them or not. So that is just bad news, and that's also the base part of the cause of the heating up of the planet. But how many people are going to get that and realize, and not, not just consumers, but those who are behind and driving this type of economic orientation toward life, you know, buy, 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 things, 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 more, 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 and nature be damned, and our health be damned. So that is a challenge. In a way, I think we're on the threshold of the greatest educational experience of the human race. One of the interesting things that's happening right now, Tonio, in my opinion, is that more and more people are turning to indigenous society for insights into how to live and how to relate in a respectful, understanding, helpful way to the natural world around us. I keep finding that in all the readings I do, and there's so much happening, it's hard to keep up. I'm sure you are aware of that. But that is one good thing, and lots of people who are not indigenous in their origins, are waking up to the values and what we can learn from indigenous societies. So that's one area. 
where I would look to for some additional signs of hope, as well as the common sense of the average human being. But is it going to be enough to minimize the pains that are coming? That, that, that seems the best way that I can frame the question. But nevertheless, I have this sense that this is a watershed moment in the history of human consciousness, that large, large numbers of people are going to wake up and become a little more thoughtful in face of what's happening to them. Because it takes, you know, you have to be hit over the head sometimes to understand something and to realize something that is important and true. So that's about the peak of my degree of optimism about the future. An opportunity, a global, unprecedented opportunity for our human species to come together in new ways that could lead to a new phase of world civilization that would be more promising in terms of survival and general success. Yeah, it's so ironic that when Europeans came to this country, we viewed the native peoples here as being savage and uncivilized. And and we're just beginning to realize the savagery and lack of civilized sensibility that we have been exhibiting and wreaking upon the world. Absolutely. But it's, a, it's slow in coming. It's a very slow process. But it is happening. Things are changing. And consciousness is being altered in the right way. There's so many good things I find turn up in the news, on the Internet. I get letters from people that invite me to get involved in projects which show this understanding. So, yes, on the one hand, a grim foreboding, and on the other hand, a positive situation and creative challenge that we're facing. We need to tap into those positive changes. There's another part of the story that, since we're having this conversation, I can't resist bringing in to the discussion, if you want to discuss it a little bit, and that is that it does appear increasingly that more and more people in governments are acknowledging the reality of the presence in our airspace, in our, in our life space, of entities of extraterrestrial connotations, we'll put it that way. And as you must know, if you follow that literature, a lot of strange things are happening. And one of them is particularly the work of John Mack, my dear friend who died too soon. He found that the contactees and the abductees, the hundreds that he interviewed and the thousands that he read about, were getting messages about the need to deal with the environment and the dangers, the mounting dangers of nuclear war. The alien technologies, if you want to use that terminology, are very interested in our military installations, uh, not only the United States, but also in Russia and Europe, and where, by the way, the governments have been looser and more open in admitting the reality of this phenomenon. So this is another variable that is at work right now in this terrestrial climactic drama that's living itself out, working itself out in the early phases of the 21st century. And that makes it even more fascinating, given that who knows what may happen. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind personally, and I've read extensively into the field, and I know a lot of the UFO researchers, that the stuff that's going on, it's real. (laughs) But again, strangely ignored, too, even since 2017, when the New York Times published their famous piece, fessing up the reality 
of these alien intrusions into our airspace. So that's another part of the story. Yeah, it's interesting how one of the things that many military people have testified about is how, as you mentioned, that these aliens were showing interest in our military installations, that they actually shut down our nuclear technology. Mm -hmm. And according to some people, they've told us that they would not allow us to destroy ourselves through Mm. nuclear technology. Mm -hmm. And it seems as though our government in particular, because it seems to be the most invested in this, continuing to fund all these nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. which is a major driver of the military-industrial complex, which is consuming most of our economy. And to acknowledge that would be to undermine our need to fund nuclear technology and to keep updating it and upgrading it and maintaining mm-hmm. it. Yeah, well... The, the motivation, of course, is supposed to be uh, to defend ourselves, but I don't think that's the correct way of talking about this. I think the insistence on investing billions of dollars in these advanced weapons is to maintain our supremacy without the slightest acknowledgement of the dangers and the need to behave in a completely opposite fashion. So, yeah, partly the, the military doesn't want to appear weak or vulnerable, but I think the most driving force, of course, is the arms producers. They stand to uh, make a lot of money. And so it's absurd, of course, the idea of putting profit above the survival of the planet. (laughs) But that's what's happening. And also the political stances that leaders of the various countries have to uphold to maintain their power status. So, (laughs) yeah, the challenge is all the more greater for ordinary people like us who are not, you know, arms producers or high-level politicians. But I think the challenge today is for everybody to take a stand, get involved, speak up, and do what we need to do to make the changes. But, of course, you know, many people, they're just struggling to survive their own personal lives. So you have that level of inability to take action. And then at the upper level, there are different kinds of reasons that prevent the moves that we need to take in order to enhance our survival potential and improve the quality of life all over the planet. Imagine if we stopped, we just got the insight by some miracle (laughs) that we don't need to invest all our money into becoming more powerful murderers, killers, and could start focusing on global harmony and global assistance to those who need assistance. But again, oddly enough, I believe in miracles. (laughs) I wrote a book that you mentioned up front on miracles, but, you know, they are rare, and they occur under rare and unusual circumstances. But who knows? We're in uncharted territories right now. Never before has the entire planet, except maybe, what was it, 65 million years ago when something landed that wiped out the dinosaurs and allowed the mammals to evolve and made room for human beings to evolve. Maybe something like that's going to happen, that the majority of human beings are going to be wiped out and the new species will emerge from that transformation or that 
destruction. Again, that's not something that we want to uh, bank on or sing the praises of, but that's a possibility Mm -hmm. uh, that we have to consider. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And considering how many of us are feeling incapable of being able to affect any kind of a change within this stuck system that we find ourselves in, where nothing seems to be really changing, at least on the, the physical worldly level, and connecting that with the miracles and the miraculous, could you talk about some of the miraculous abilities that Swami Nada Ramananda had? And you also tell the story of a song culture of the Papago tribe of southern Arizona mm. and how sound and intention and using the power of the mind and intention to create what our limited perspective of modern science considers to be miracles. Right, right. Well, to begin, uh, I'll mention the unusual things that Swami Nada had. For one thing, he trained his breath so that he, and I saw him do this, and he was done under scientifically controlled circumstances. On one breath, he would play the tabla for 35 minutes, brilliant stuff that he would perform, sometimes in public, sometimes for scientists who wanted to be sure that he could really do this on one breath. And while he's on the one breath for 35 minutes playing the tabla, he's staring fixedly at an image of the god Shiva. And there's a story about how he got this particular image. He was giving a presentation in India somewhere, and at the end of it, all people came up and shook his hand and praised him and everything. And a man appeared out of nowhere, a very old man who handed him this murti, it's called, which literally means temple, and it's an image. It was an image of the god Shiva. And Narabhamananda describes it. He says he thanked the man and looked at the image, at the murti, and looked up, and he was gone. And he asked the other people around there, did you see someone? No one saw the man who gave him the... Again, I don't know that that's a true story, but I'm just reporting. One thing about Nanda I do not think he would ever lie and exaggerate and make believe on anything, having gotten to know him. So that was something that was extraordinary. But the training of his breath is something that we can all use breathing as a way of dealing with everyday anxieties, focusing the mind... So he did it at a level that is mind-blowing, but we're all capable of training ourselves through breath, and not only for making music, and I mean, if you happen to be into making music, literally, but for cultivating the music of your own body. Tuning into your own body is something that we can all do, we can all practice, and the breath control and training is something that everybody, I, I mean... I used to play the flute, I don't anymore, but I found myself practicing and extending my control over my breath, and that in turn altered the quality of my awareness. Just the other day, uh, for some reason, I woke up, and I don't know what it was, something in the air, something in the news, and I felt anxious. And I said, why am I feeling anxious? And then I said, okay, get up and go out into the air, and I have a little tiny backyard and got back, and the sun was out, and I started some breathing. The air was fresh and cool. In five minutes, I, I forgot what I was anxious about. 
and I was back to leading a good and constructive day. So there are many things, uh, these so-called miracles, that we can learn from and practice ourselves. Now, you mentioned the Papago Indians. I, I was totally fascinated by the story of these natives who were Aztecs from the Aztec population, and reading about them, they live in a very, very dry part of New Mexico where there's virtually no water, and they have a practice in which they have songs for all of the everyday things that they do. So if you get up in the morning and start the day, there's a song for it. If you are in a conflict with somebody, there's a song for it, and you recite the song, and the song will, will help you. The interesting thing about these songs, which cover all facets of life, then they all involve attempts to improve your situation. But the interesting thing is uh, the way Ruth Murray, the author of the book on the Papagal Indians, described, she studied them firsthand uh, back in the 1930s. But what they did, the point of the song was to visualize and sing your visualization of the optimal thing that you're aiming for. So if you're going to meet with a person and have a, a serious powwow, you sing a song about the harmony between friends. And the interesting thing is, by focusing on the final product, the thing you're aiming for, that seems to be conducive to producing the results that you're aiming for. Oddly enough, this fits with the research of some physicists that have worked with PK have concluded that the way you get results in a PK test is never to bother about how the end product that you want to happen, how you're going to do it. You just focus on the ideal result. So if I want to have a, an encounter with somebody that is giving me a hard time, let's say, I visualize myself in a way that it's perfect. I visualize and imagine a beautiful consummation of that interaction with that person. And that makes a lot of common sense, but it also makes parapsychological sense from what is known by individuals who have done this kind of research. So that's a fascinating idea and a bit of practical knowledge that we can apply to everyday living. And that, of course, ties in with the notion of mind control, because it takes an ability to focus our own minds on the optimal images of the things that we're aiming for in life. So if we don't have a talent or a skill or even a modest ability to control your mind, you're not going to be very effective. It seems as though a chaotic mind is more conducive to chaotic interactions with the world around us. A unified mind that we can all achieve by simple acts of time and meditation will render us more effective in whatever it is that we're aiming to do. But we have to have a sense of aiming that is an educated sense, a skilled sense, not an anxious, pushy, driving, over-emphasizing approach. It often happens, you know, when you're trying to do something effectively, you try too hard. And so not a Brahma, as well as the parapsychologists have the same message. Loosen up and stay clear of complicated inner chatter and anxious gropings as possible. 
But it all begins with yourself. I mean, and that's an optimistic message. We don't need to, you know, spend money, hire people to teach us how to be mindful. It's very simple. I mean, and, and with practice, we learn. I have a couple of instruments I like to play with. I don't know the darn thing about the kalimba that I have in my house. And I play with it in a concentrated manner. And I'm learning how to create music I never heard before on it. To me, it's pleasing. <laughs> I'm not talking about trying to make a career out of it, but even if I were, that's what I would do. I would, would focus and attend to the process in a way that was wholehearted. That's a nice expression, wholehearted. Or as Swaminanda Brahmanan used to say, you have to learn everything by heart. He, he bragged to me that he's never read a book in his life, but he knows about 450 songs which contain, as it were, the collective wisdom of ancient India. And every song is different. It's a little bit like the Papago Indians. Songs for all occasions. And that idea of song, music, rhythm, being consciously cultivated by ourselves, our ordinary everyday selves, on a daily basis, and how to use that to tune into ourselves and tune into other people and other sentient beings in the natural world around us is infinitely precious advice. We can do it ourselves. We have the heart and the will to do so. There's also the element of the feeling quality of the outcome mm. that adds a huge component to visualizing the outcome as opposed to the state that we're currently in and or how we might get to that outcome. Yeah, yeah, well, undoubtedly the feeling uh, is crucial. And I think from feeling, you know, you can't conjure up feelings magically. That, it's got to be in you, and it has to be spontaneous. Spontaneity, by the way, is a variable that parapsychologists John Palmer, for example, is a masterful researcher in parapsychology, and he concluded from several really massive studies about success in parapsychological experimentation that spontaneity is the key variable. If it's calculating, if it's effortful, the effort is counterproductive. The psychological sense of pushing yourself doesn't work. So it's tricky. You have to be somehow empty and totally relaxed and at the same time aiming with a whole heart and a whole mind toward whatever it is that you're trying to change in yourself, in a situation that you find yourself in, or something that's out beyond you. And with the implication and the, the assumption that it might be possible that our thoughts can interact with beings and processes outside of our own body. And again, there are reasons to believe that that's possible. And it's a part of any open-minded spiritual point of view that we inhabit, you might say, an open universe where mind is king and we're able that these things are possible. I myself am convinced that all sorts of things are possible that common sense would declare absurd or ridiculous or impossible. But then again, I've spent a lot of time, A, having experiences, I've had a lot of experiences of my own, and B, reading 
and conversing with people and getting to know many of the researchers in the field. So I have a different perspective, and I try to get that across in my book. And in general, I try to encourage people to be a little more optimistic about the latent powers of their inner resources. Yeah, so the feeling is crucial. And we also tend to forget how everything we've created, we first imagined. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, you can change your life. Just an idea. Oh, I'm going to try this, you know? I mean, I catch myself suddenly thinking of trying something and taking a single step, and then it leads to a chain of events. So absolutely, we forget, and we, but that's why we need teachers to be reminded. I mean, I'm constantly being reminded of things by people I meet or books I read or events occurring around me. And so paying attention, what we do with our own minds is the biggest challenge. I mean, nothing we do, nothing we feel can occur apart from being mediated by our own minds. And we're the bosses. We're watching who we should be. It's one of the skills. I wonder how many people instinctively and generally take time out to observe themselves, you know, and say, okay, what I did with that person was a bit stupid or I was a bit cruel and I'm going to remember that and try to recompense for it at a meet, future meeting with a person. I mean, self-observation is rarely discussed. I mean, I, I'm sure people, you know, I'm not the only one to come up with the idea. But in response to what you just said, I would, you know, really try to call attention to that possibility of getting to know you. Know thyself. It's an ancient Greek. Know thyself, the ancient Greek oracle, know thyself. It's as good today as it was 2,000 years ago. Yeah, and the more we are able to do that, the more we can intentionally or create intentions that are more beneficial rather than creating from our past automatic kind of default programming. Exactly. Perfectly said. And it, the programming, there's so many programs inside of us. Yeah, it's something that we need to remind ourselves of constantly, of the, the virtues and powers of our conscious and unconscious minds. And again, my big message to the world is find a sadhana, find a practice that you can use to help you observe yourself and help observe yourself, improve in whatever it is that you're aiming to do. And if not, and you leave it to, you know, chance and you're unprepared, it's harder to cope with the challenges of life. But if you have cultivated a certain mindfulness, a certain body of skills, an ability to hold your mind on one thing at a time, it can save you a lot of trouble and be a useful ally in the art of living, which is another concept that fascinates me. I mean, I'm a painter, I'm a writer, but most of all, I like to think of the art of living as the main art I'm trying to learn because I'm living 24 hours a day, and I only paint and write part of the day. So there's the rest of the challenge of my life, 
that I need to work on. That's Michael Grosso. He's the author of The Yoga of Sound, The Life and Teachings of the Celestial Songman, Swami Nada Brahmananda. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. And, you know, getting back to Swami Nada Brahmananda's approach to what you could call the art of, of living, is he puts it all into musical kind of terms, like, inviting us to make music out of our lives and to see mm-hmm. and to see music in the discordant aspects and, and notes of our lives and using them in a kind of way to, to sing our way out of all the conflicts and, and discords that we encounter and challenges that we encounter in life. Absolutely. And if you, whoever you are, I mean, if you sit down and I mean, I did it this morning. I got up, and I did a little practice. Uh, one of my instruments there, I have drums, and I have a uh, kalimba. And I was feeling a little, not anxious. I was looking forward to talking with you, but it's always a challenge. And I had Trump on my mind a little bit, the corrosive influence, to be sure. And so I wanted to clear myself. So I started, I just sat down and did some breathing and started playing around with the keys on my uh, kalimba and getting some nice sounds and practicing for five minutes. And in five minutes, I was uh, in fresh mood, not a quaver of uneasiness in me. And it's a wonderful thing to have to, to be able to do that. And so, yeah, and of course, if you can do it through music, great, but that's not the only way. It's not the only form of practice. As I said, it could be just plain meditating, or it could be a practice where you can see the difference between doing well and, and getting better. That's why music is so good. Or art. One of the things I've learned recently, I have millions of brushes, and I'm always looking for the right brush. And, of course, that's good. But what I discovered, this is like a discovery after years of painting. I can use any brush. If I keep the same brush, I can do delicate work or big work in big, wide strokes, I can do anything with the brush if I keep using it. I don't fuss over it. I just think about what I want to do with this brush, what I'm aiming for. I want to get a certain effect. And I find I find the way just by practicing and doing it. And that could be true for any practice that we have that we're trying to improve. It could be just learning how to be a better listener, for example, which is something that most people, I think, don't think of as a skill despite the fact we all have to interact with each other in life and in business and in the challenges of life. So learning how to listen, to me, is another, I mean, sort of related to music, right? You have to listen to music. But listening to people, listening to whatever signals. You know, John Cage, for example, an American philosopher, musician, wrote a book called Silence, which I no longer have. I want to get a copy of it and read it again. But he taught me how to listen to the ordinary sounds of everyday life and to find music in it. Traffic in noise, there can be music if you listen to it in the right way. Other times, and that can be very helpful if it's an annoying, intrusive sound. If you take a different attitude and say, okay, that's cool, that's part of my experience right now, and listen to it, you know, attentively. And you can start hearing it in a different way and it won't bother you. It won't annoy you, you see. You embrace it. And so 
everyday life is the ultimate battlefield, as it were. And these inner skills that Nadabrahma taught me, and that anybody can learn, really, have been very helpful and continue to be useful in terms of just living my life. Mm, yeah, I I connect with what you, you said about hearing things in, in different ways. I grew up in the East Village of Manhattan, and, ah. and then I moved up here to Vermont in time to go to high school. And I remember in the early years up here, there were times when I would just, you know, we lived out in the woods. I would just sit down on a tree, on a fallen tree, and just sit there. I, w- I had no intention of doing anything remotely in the realm of meditation, mm-hmm. but I would just spontaneously sink into that kind of silence that that's not actually silent. It's like you, you actually can hear a kind of what people have talked about as, as the kind of logos of, of the universe. And I've actually had a, a lot of those kind of experiences mm-hmm. in my childhood, but that was probably the most mundane of them all. And yet was equally profound in its own mm-hmm. way. It's just that I wasn't looking for it and it was just there, and I didn't think anything of it. I just mm-hmm. had that experience many times in contrast with growing up in the city. And then years later, you know, when I got into spiritual practice and learning the actual practice of sitting and listening to the sounds, you know, the, the sounds in the environment, and at the time I was living in, a, in another city, and just mm-hmm. practicing turning all of those often discordant sounds into a kind of harmonious feeling of sound, welcoming it as mm-hmm. as a kind of a primal sound that can just be present with and, and not be annoyed by, not react to, not try to push away. Sounds beautiful to me. And by the way, you say you grew up in the East Village. I used to live there. Who knows? We may have met each other. <laughs> of course, <laughs> past. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I left in the early 70s. Ah, uh, uh-huh. Yeah, I, I was living in New York in the 70s. That's when I met Nara Brahmananda in the 70s. And uh, I was a young teacher, philosophy teacher, and learned a lot from my students. I used to, I taught a course in parapsychology, and amazing students had all kinds of stories to tell, and that was a great period of my life. As a matter of fact, <laughs> the book that we're talking about, I basically wrote in the late 70s, except for the last 40 or so pages that I wrote recently. And I ended up here in Charlottesville, which is now famous for uh, a couple of nasty things that happened here a couple of years ago. But yeah. I was curious to ask if you could share perhaps an experience that you've had in the realm of what perhaps we could call the miraculous, just as a bit of icing on the cake. Well, you know, the word miracle is used in funny ways, but the way I use the term, whether it's in the context of religion or in the context of mediumship or just everyday life, is an event that is physically impossible. In other words, it has to transcend physics. And let's put it this way. I have absolutely no doubt in my mind about the reality of ghosts. 
Now, we don't think of them as miraculous, except in my sense of the word, they represent phenomena that are inexplicable by any physical explanation. And I had a student once who told me that she had out-of-body experiences and was, her house was haunted and all that. And as far as the out-of-body experiences, I told her casually one day, not expecting anything would happen. I said, oh, really? You can leave your body? In a... So I said, well, just come and visit me sometime and let me know that you're there. <laughs> I can assure you, Tonya, that I had no expectation that you would do anything. A couple of days later, I wake up in the morning and I go into my living room and I notice that my music stand, in those days I used to practice my flute every day, and I had my music stand right next to a bookshelf, the same place every day, day in and day out. It was right in the middle of the living room. What the hell happened here? There's no one in the house but me. At that time, I was living alone. Well, a minute later, almost a minute later, upon my discovery, the phone rings. It's my student. And it's the first thing she says, how do you like the new furniture arrangement? And I said, what the heck are you talking about? And she tells me that the previous evening, she got out of her body and thought of me, and she found herself watching me in the kitchen, which is where I was at the time that she described it reading, and she tried to get my attention, and I did not react. I didn't see her, nothing, because I, I was pretty involved in what I was doing. So, in a huff, she floats around the house, and she notices my music stand. She says, and I tried to grab it and move it, and she somehow succeeded in doing it. And that's the explanation of what happened to my music stand. And there's no way that anyone could talk me out of the fact that I knew what happened. I knew it was out of place. She described exactly what I was doing in the kitchen. And so a consciousness projected itself out of the body. She lived about 30, 40 miles away from me and came to my house and physically moved an object from one place to another. That's a fact. And it's not wildly dramatic and strange. Okay, the same woman invited me, if I wanted to learn something about the ghost that was haunting her house, to spend the night in the haunted house. So here's the other quasi-miraculous, whatever you want to call it, event that followed. So I said, sure, I'll come and I'll, I'll spend the night. So I spent the night in her house. She and her husband and children were upstairs. I was downstairs sitting in the room where the ghost apparently liked to appear, but it appeared everywhere. So I'm sitting there. It's about 2 o'clock in the morning, alert, and I'm looking around, just seeing, waiting, not expecting anything to happen. And I'm in this room, and suddenly I hear a gong ring. I look up on the wall, and there's a stick with a gong, but nobody rang it. So I get up, and I walk to the gong, and I pick it up, and I hit the gong, and it's the same sound. So I say to myself, well, I'll be darned. He's here. He's in the house, and he just let me know. I say he, because he was definitely a male, a dirty male, by the way. I like to watch the girls when they're taking showers. And so I said to myself, cool, I got a reaction. And I go back to my seat, and I'm working, and I look up about maybe 10 minutes later, and I see in the corner of the room, transparent but distinct human form. 
i.e. a ghost. I look at it, and it comes straight at me. I'm about to shout out, he's here, and I'm paralyzed. I can't utter a word. He's right on my face for about a second, and I'm paralyzed. I'm terrified and totally delighted that I'm getting data. I'm being attacked by a ghost. He disappears, and uh, I said nothing until the morning, and I, you know, recounted what happened to the woman who invited me, et cetera, et cetera. So these are two events that I would count as very striking instances of paranormal phenomena. And if these things happen to me, it certainly enhances my ability to believe similar types of phenomena that other people report. And that's the value of having personal experiences, that you get to know things are true, and you don't have to rely on speculation. But anyway, those are a couple of examples of uh, some pretty strange things I've been through. Well, thank you so much for sharing those. I, I love these kind of stories. And did you ever ask how she managed to move the music stand from her incorporeal state? Yes, I did, and I don't think she knew how, uh, because she couldn't touch me. I think the reason is there was unconsciously maybe there was a fear or respect not to terrify me or bother me or frighten me or something. But when she hit upon that music stand, how does an entity that is invisible, intangible, and non-physical move something like a music stand? It's not heavy, maybe a couple of pounds, but how is that possible? Well, how do any of the PK phenomena, how is that possible? It is possible. I mean, uh, it's actual. And so it seems apparently the mind can, under special circumstances, seep over into the physical world and do things, and act upon the physical world, and sometimes just create physical effects. And, of course, the literature is just abounds with illustrations of that. Yeah, I, I love those kind of stories, and the literature does absolutely abound with, with all kinds of paranormal kind of stories. But I was very interested to hear your personal own stories since you're my guest today and yeah yeah i'm happy to share them with you and thank you for this invitation and i wish you well i wish you well and thank you so much my pleasure okay then take care you too bye-bye bye-bye and that was michael grosso he's the author of the yoga of sound the life and teachings of the celestial songman swami nada brahmananda
the music that I am writing is about the conscious use of the power of words. Although I am singing about myself, it's not, all the songs are not necessarily about how I am, but they're affirmations, things that I like to say that go into my ear and go into my heart. Like the old folks used to say, everything that come out your mouth go into your own ear. That's why I write about the stuff I write about. Um, this song right here is not a song that I've written, but it's a song that I sing to myself when I just need to hear these words. This is by Pharrell Sanders and Leon Thomas. There was a time when peace was on the earth, joy and happiness did reign, cause each man knew his worth in my Returning, I cry as time flies. The Creator has master plan, peace and happiness for every man. The Creator makes but one man Peace and happiness Through all There was a time There was a light that shined, oh, and rainbows are the shadow of love that so
that's it for this magical mystery tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Thank you.